Welcome to the Empirical Cycling Podcast. I'm your host, Coley Moore, joined as usual by Kyle Helson, and I want to thank everybody for listening and asking you to subscribe, although I assume most of you have, so at this point, uh, the best thing you can do to, for the podcast is to share it with a friend, especially if you think uh, what you're listening to is helpful, and uh, if you also want to uh, support the show, you could do so at empiricalcycling.com slash donate, because we are an ad-free podcast, so... Um, Please donate. That would be great. Thank you so much. And we've got the show notes up on the website. We may or may not have some because we're kind of winging it today. Uh, we'll see where we touch on uh, in the show. Uh, we've got some merch at empiricalcyclingpodcast.threadless.com. And if you have any coaching and consultation inquiries, questions, or comments, please email me at empiricalcycling at gmail.com. And also on the Instagram, uh, Weekend AMAs and the Instagram stories. So give me a follow over there and participate in that or just watch and read. That's cool too. So we have another 10-minute tips episode. It's been a little bit, um, but uh, I think this is going to be a good way to kind of touch on strength training because uh, it is that time of year in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, without doing like a big elongated series with, you know, nerdy mechanisms and whatnot. So um, Kyle and I have been strength training for a long time, Kyle a lot longer than me. And uh, we're just going to kind of wing it. We're going to talk about why should you strength train. We're going to talk about how. And actually, I think that's probably going to cover <laughs> probably a couple hours. Um, so, Kyle, why do you strength train? Well, I would say within the realm of track sprint cycling, strength training occupies the same role almost as, as long, slow endurance rides do for, for endurance athletes. Um, you look at the people who just won gold medals in Tokyo for on in track sprint cycling. And they're all big people with, you know, big legs, big glutes, they're very strong in the gym. If you watch them on Instagram, things like that. And it was known, obviously you go back to the nineties, you even look at pictures of like Marty Nothstein and the, and those guys there, they were big, but they were seemingly somehow maybe not even as big, certainly not <laughs> as big. <laughs> um, probably not putting up the same like raw, max weights as the people are today and i think over the last 10 years especially in track sprint cycling people have realized that yeah you want to go fast you gotta lift heavy weights often yeah. way more often than if you were a crit racer or even an endurance track rider um well i think these days also the um with the gear size getting bigger, it's because, like, it used to be more about the rate of force development. Like, how fast can you turn on your muscles? How fast could you actually use all that strength? And, you know, you would be doing uh, flying 200s at going down the, you know, um, the back straight at, like, what, 160 RPM or something like that? Um, yeah, yeah. You watch the videos and they're going, I mean, they're still going fast. They're going low 10s. You know, maybe maybe high nines at altitude or at, in, in Moscow on like ninety eight inch gears or ninety six inch gears, like just spinning their their brains out trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to not slow down. You know, yeah. like fifty two fourteen was like a big gear or something. Oh, well, now fifty two fourteen isn't even a big gear for endurance riders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, somebody said in the last uh, uh, the last Olympic quad in Rio that like one hundred and ten inches was too small. Uh, for the uh, Omnium, uh, like in the points race. Um, although I think actually one of the big differences between uh, 
track sprinters of old and track sprinters of new, and uh, sorry for this deviation, folks, um, but this is kind of relevant. I think they had a lot more upper body muscle than sprinters do now. Like sprinters now, I think they see the upper body stuff as more for function and to like keep you from launching yourself off your bike if you like don't have yeah. any grip strength or like shoulder <laughs> strength. Like imagine trying to do a start if you can like single leg press, I don't know, 400 kilos or something ridiculous and... You, can, you can't <laughs> row like a hundred pounds, right? Yeah. yeah, you can't. You can't actually stabilize your body. Like you have, if you put Chris Froome's upper body on like Jeffrey Hoog, Hoogland's legs or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be uh, ridiculous. Um, and so I think uh, that actually gets to one of the first reasons to do strength training is for function. Um, like I think a lot of people notice when they do some strength training, their on bike comfort gets better. Uh, especially in the upper body and maybe lower back sometimes, but you know, low back's kind of a tricky one. Um, but like shoulders, neck, that kind of stuff. Um, like I noticed when I, uh, cause I am, you know, busy and my life's been upended like nine times in the last couple of years. So I've been like on and off strength training quite a bit. And every time I start back again, then I'm, I'm riding, I notice I'm a lot more comfortable on the bike and I can be comfortable for longer. Um, so I think that's one of the nice benefits of it. And, um, one of the other nice benefits is, um, just impact loading or just like loading of the bones in general, cause that makes them more dense. And you see people like Yosepa Baloki, uh, from that, uh, that crash in the, what, mid aughts or something. Um, yeah. he fell and he broke his femur. Um, and if I think I can't obviously say for sure, but I think if he had done some strength training and he didn't have like hollow, like brittle bird bones, um, it, <laughs> he, he may not have had a career ending crash that day. Yeah. I think the other thing too is one of the benefits of strength training is that you are putting yourself in more extreme ranges of motion and applying a load and having to produce force in that position which means that you get stronger across a broad range of motion, which will make sitting in some mildly uncomfortable bike position a little <laughs> bit easier. Yeah. Right? Well, I like, mean, th well, that's the question of specificity, isn't it, though? Because um, a lot of people would look at the range of motion on a bike, especially for the legs, and they would go, oh, that's not that big. Like, why do we need to squat deep? Um, you know, it, well, uh, we can kind of get into the, you know, mechanism of that. Uh, another time deeply, but uh, I think the short answer is, well, because what you're talking about here is mobility, right? It's yeah, flexibility That's plus it. strength in those extreme ranges of motion is mobility, uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> so It's a good uh, trend, a trendy word these days, mobility. Oh, I'm working on my mobility. I'm not, it's not just flexibility, it's mobility. I feel like that's the... Yeah, because flexibility is more like what position can you put yourself in passively if you're like not flexing your muscles and you can just push your whatever arm or leg into whatever position or torso. Um, and you know, there's, um, you know, you don't need to be the most mobile or flexible person in the world to have a good, um, you know, time on the bike really. Although I think, um, you know, a lot of people have like hamstring problems on the bike, especially like extending their, their legs while they're bent over. And that's actually something strength training can address as well. Right. I, I've got a spiel ready for it, but, um, why don't you take a crack at it first? Cause I think you're going to be on the same page as me with like, what benefits does strength training have for mobility? Well, I think 
if you just sit down and, and stretch, sure, you can put yourself into those positions and passively stretch your way to be able to do, to be able to do the splits or something like that. But that is somewhat different than having to apply a load and then move into that position. Not to mention if you're sort of ignoring your hamstrings in most trainings, riding a bike doesn't really use that much hamstring. Um, when you actually do do exercises for hamstrings, part of the eccentric movement stretches your hamstring. <laughs> so you are actually, you know, expand, uh, being hopefully being able to expand kind of the range of motion you can get out of your hamstrings, which should help you in your other athletic pursuits that would where your hamstrings might be tight because when you train them, you're actually inducing some stretch and not just passively sitting in a desk chair all day with your hamstrings just kind of tight or something. Because or, you're well, like, oh, that they're actually shortened because you know your knees are bent, and so that would put them in a shorter position. So when you stand, and then you've got to try to touch your toes, if you can barely get your hands past your knees, um, I would expect you to have a bad time trying to get really, really low on a bike um, due to your hamstring, you know, flexibility or mobility. Um, and so, like, what would you want to do to address that? Um, single leg straight leg deadlift. That's a very functional exercise. Incorporates a lot of the body um, and balance as well. If you hinge at the hip, keep your knees very slightly bent. And, you know, you can do a set of 10 or 15. And um, also record yourself when you do strength training. Uh, watching yourself do a movement uh, from the third person is much different than actually uh, just watching yourself in a mirror. Uh, or just not yeah. even seeing yourself at all. And you can pick up on a lot of uh, your own movement patterns where you can see it and go, oh, I'm screwing this up. I got to try this again, which is why if you're in the gym and you see people recording themselves, it's probably only partly for vanity. And the rest of it <laughs> is for function of, you know, I need to see myself do this so I can fix my uh, my problems. Um, so the other one for for good mor- uh, uh, for hamstrings, I would say, is good mornings. Um mm-hmm. And this is one that actually is really easy to overload. Um, like, I'm fairly strong, and I still am only doing good mornings with, like, 135. Um, yeah, totally. I, I've been doing them with somewhere between 135 and 185, depending on how many reps. And it's like, you can, you think it's like, oh, not, especially if you're someone who's squatting over 300 pounds regularly, like, oh, this is, my hamstring should be strong. Like, I can do this. And you know, it it's a little humbling, but it's, I mean, <laughs> no, the lower back sometimes ends up being a, a limiter there too. So yeah. Just, and then the next day you're going to go, Oh my God, my hamstrings are so sore. Um, and that's why, because when you get into these extreme, you know, quote unquote extreme, you know, for a cyclist doing a good morning to, you know, whatever range of motion you can is pretty extreme because you don't really use those like center hamstring muscles on the bike, like you said. And so, um, so when you get there, it's actually inducing a stretch. And especially if you pause at the end range of motion for a second or two, uh, I find personally that this really helps my range of motion. Like when Mm -hmm. I was trying to get my squat deeper and I'm doing okay now, I used to have a You've seen it. I used to have a horrible squat range of motion. I was like two or three inches above parallel um, was like the deepest I could go. And anyway, if you if you aren't familiar with with some of these exercises, especially I know that the good morning is maybe scary for some people because they people are always told like, oh, don't lift with your back, blah, blah, blah. Well, your back Um, should be, you know, in the same position for the whole range. Yeah. 
But um, if you look on if you look on YouTube, the uh, I don't know do a third party plug here, but uh, Mike <laughs> Isratel puts up some pretty good strength training movement, you know, big, you know, top ten mistakes type videos. Um, they're pretty good. And so for some of these exercises, if you feel like you have no idea or you have a video and you're looking at it of yourself and you go, I'm doing something wrong, but I can't really tell, um, look up Mike Isratel's videos. Yeah. Um, so why don't we get into, uh, let's see. Um, okay. So I, you know, so we're kind of covering it from a functional perspective at the moment. Um, but also we kind of touched on strength. So like, why would you want to do this? Partly because just general health and bone density. Um, I think especially for athletes who are getting into their mid to late forties and early fifties, this is something that you really, really want to do. Cause this is like, you, you have you heard of like this is this is a gendered term apologies uh, but have you heard of old man strength or old person strength I guess we could say yeah yeah right yeah it's where somebody's got great endurance and they they're just losing their sprint like Tom Bonin in the last couple of years of his career he wasn't as good a sprinter as when he was young um, so anyway so those large motor units if you don't use them you lose them um, and so you can actually well also the rate of force development the neural uh, component of this starts to decline as we get older. Um, so we can actually train those a little bit. You know, you're not going to stop father time. Um, father time. Yeah. Guys are assholes. So, so is time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you're not going to stop father time from coming and taking those things from you, but you can certainly help yourself along by doing some strength training as you get older. Yeah. I also think that as everyone ages, your, what muscle mass you have tends to fade but if you are lifting even a little bit, um, you know, you can try to stave some of that off as well. In addition to things like diet, but like if you're just, you know, sitting on the couch and <laughs> and eating donuts and stuff, um, you know, even if you're riding a ton, like, yeah, as you age more and more, you'll lose more and more muscle mass just naturally. Yeah, and you'll you'll keep what you use for sure. Like I'm sure a lot of people have seen um uh you know cross sections of leg muscle mass and uh fat mass in older adults and people who are, you know, lifelong triathletes or runners or cyclists have a lot more leg muscle and a lot less fat than people who are completely sedentary where it's like it might be the same size quad but you know, you're going to see like an inch of fat on the outside and it's like, Oh, <laughs> I mean, I know, I know at that point you're old, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not great to like be losing muscle mass like that. You don't want to die sitting on the toilet. No, <laughs> I can't get up. can't get up from the toilet. Here lies. <laughs> Here yeah. sits. Uh, yeah. Here sits Elvis Presley. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, um, that brings up something that I, I, I do want to do a f deeper dive onto, uh, into, onto, into um, one of these days is there's a study that looked at um, – well, because for a long time, VO2 max in old age was one of the best predictors of longevity. But even better than VO2 max, uh, if memory serves, is leg strength. Because mm -hmm. if you can get up from the toilet, if you can get up from your chair, if you can walk up and down stairs, um, you will move more and you can, you know, you'll just like, go, you'll go, oh, I need to like get up and get a drink of water instead of sitting there and going, oh, it's so much effort to get up. I'm not going to have some water or I'm not going to take a piss or I'm just going to sit here on the toilet for two hours. Um, yeah. Or whatever it is. And, yeah. 
And obviously, if you're able to do those things, the odds that you are able to get even a little bit of exercise in, be that walking every day or something like that, even if it's 10, 15 minutes, that helps a lot, especially as you age. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, like I, kn- I knew an older guy, uh, well, he's still alive, so I, I know him, um, who could, he couldn't really get up out of a chair. Um, or, you know, if he was like outside gardening, he would like bend down to like pick up some weeds and then he couldn't get back up. Like, you know, that's the kind of thing where you could easily see, oh God, yes. So strength is, uh, really, really important. So, okay. So you actually mentioned this briefly is diet. So what about diet? Um, cause I think a, maybe a lot of people, I think most people are not under this impression, but some people may be, um, cause I, I, I don't know. Do you, it's just me, or do you see a lot of cyclists who are confused or don't have good information on like supplements and protein and things like that? Yeah, I think well, especially if you're competing in a in an organization where you have a high probability of getting or a small even, but some pro, some non-zero probability of having to pass a drug test. Some people for supplements are like, I just don't want to have to deal with it. It's probably good. There's probably some stuff I could do. I just don't want the headache, you know, yeah. of worrying about that kind of stuff. And I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Um, I think no, yeah, I think there's ton, tons of tons of people think like, oh, like I'm doing an endurance sport and what we're taught from a young age in endurance sports is carbs, carbo loading, carbs, 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 you know. Um, yeah. But oh, I'm doing strength training now, so I need some protein, right? So like the, the most common one I get is should I supplement with branch chain amino acids? And the answer mm. is no. Because, um, well, like, okay, so here's the thing. is like you can, you can supplement – or you can supplement. You can just have protein. Like a protein supplement is just, you know, if you, if you are having food, like if I have a can of tuna, that's not enough protein for me personally for one serving. So I'll, like, I'll dip into the whey protein. But if I could, if I could stand to have two cans of tuna, that would be even better. Um, although, you know, it's – neither here nor there. But anyway, so when it comes to like protein, does just having protein help you gain muscle mass? The answer is no. You need a stimulus first, obviously. It's sort of like if you have a lot of B vitamins, which are used in metabolism, are you going to um, improve your VO2 max? The answer is obviously no. It's the same thing. You need a stimulus first, then you need the ingredients to make the thing. So you need lots of protein to make the muscles and then uh, with a stimulus. But like branched-chain amino acids are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And these are actually very highly available in things like whey protein and yogurt. Yeah. And I think the other thing generally too is is you kind of hit on this with the, the can of tuna, but it's probably going to be cheaper and more cost effective and probably taste better if you just eat food. <laughs> First order is like eat food, right? Like like food is cheap, relatively speaking, compared to supplements. And supplements should be but an add-on, like a way to ensure that you don't have any deficiencies. They shouldn't be like a staple of your diet. Like there is no reason that you should only get your protein sources from whey shakes <laughs> while you're working out or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think actually, well, at some point I'm going to have uh, a real nutritionist on to talk about this kind of thing. So um, so for now, just let's, let's uh, put this on the back burner for a bit. Let's get into just general strength training. Uh, so how would you want to start? Like if you're nervous about going to the gym, where's what do you do? Well, ideally you would find a coach or someone you trust who 
could go with you to help you learn movements correctly and not totally injure yourself and also present realistic weight targets and things like that. Uh, but hypothetically, if you cannot do that, there are, I mean, there are tons, there are tons of resources online to at least see videos of exercises being correctly performed. And you, like we said earlier, can video yourself initially with no weight or with just an empty bar or with a light dumbbell or something like that, trying to do some of these exercises. Um, and honestly, if you're embarrassed because you're new, everyone started off somewhere. Everyone was new at some point. There's plenty of people who hop on a bike for the first time and you see them riding around the park and you're all kitted out and doing your intervals. But when you ride past them, you don't think, aha, that, that person sucks. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's, it's the same thing at the gym. Right. Like no one, no one is thinking, oh, haha, that look at that. Look at that noob. Like, aren't they such a weakling? Yeah. Well, if they're looking at you, you might be doing something wrong and they're like, waiting for something to pop while you're doing your movement <laughs> out of concern. Um, so a lot of the time... Then you end actually, up on a meme page. And yeah, then... exactly. Yeah, you'll end up on, what is it, Jim Fails um, yeah. or something like that. <laughs> it, yeah, uh, yeah, got horrifying, horrifying stuff in there. Um, yeah, you don't want to be there. So yeah, having a, a trainer or somebody experienced you trust is great. Um, but I think also if you're new... Um, you know, honestly, don't be afraid to like go up to somebody kind of friendly looking in the gym who you, who you see doing the things that you want to do. Like somebody's got a good squat. You can be like, Hey, sorry to bother you between sets. Would you mind like helping me look at my squat and giving me a couple pointers? I'm sure they would be extremely happy to. People have done that with me in the gym and I'm always really, really happy to, to go help. Yeah. yeah and I think sometimes it's a little scary too, because people will be sitting there with their headphones in looking really serious being like, uh, uh. <laughs> or they or they're like breathing really heavy, like uh, uh, working really hard. Uh, uh. But like, yeah, nine. If you go to the gym, most of your time is spent sitting around. <laughs> Some very small fraction is actually spent actually lifting weights. So. <laughs> that's that's and, very and true. It's it's it. I think previously, before everyone had headphones and and things like that, it was probably much more social. But now, especially because everyone's got their headphones and they want to listen to whatever music they want to listen to, or weirdos will listen to like murder mystery documentaries or something <laughs> while they're lifting um it yeah i think it can seem much more antisocial. well also if the person in charge of the music at your gym doesn't have music that you like as their choice then yeah you're gonna want to go with headphones it gets really weird to listen to kelly clarkson for the fourth time <laughs> in the middle of a squat set when you're like man i wish i could listen to my sugar right now <laughs> um, but yeah i think i think that's a good point the other thing is if you are working with a coach and if this coach feels comfortable with reviewing lifting videos in addition to your incessant training peaks comments, perhaps you could ask them <laughs> to also be an, an extra set of eyes if you can yeah. take, successfully take a video of yourself. Well, yeah, that's how I do it. Um, I, I'll be like, well, I'll, well, people I know who are really new, I'll suggest strongly, please find a trainer to help you learn these certain techniques. And then we'll, you know, we won't do everything for every session. Um, but, you know, it's like you learn front squats, but I may not add front squats to every single training session, you know, um, or like deadlifts, but not everything is about deadlifts, et cetera, et cetera. So just making sure you've got those movement patterns in. Um, and they're looked after and making sure that you're not breaking down with technique. Um, cause I, I'll ask a lot of my athletes, like record your last set for me. 
because that's when you're tired and when your technique's the most likely to break down. And if I know that the person's working at submax weights and you know they've got the safety arms and everything, like I can see their technique and give them pointers um, when uh, an actual in-person lifting coach may not be available. Especially with COVID these days, that may also be an additional uh, challenge to get somebody there to help you with technique. And also, Kyle, you've seen trainers do this in the gym, and uh, so have I. But I think a lot of the time, actually, they they overcue people. Like a, a lifting cue being like chest up or you know knees out or whatever it is. Um, if you get if you give somebody a laundry list of like fifty things to work on every single rep, they're not going to remember any oh, yeah. of it. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Every day you got to pick one, and we're going to do work on that one thing. You know, yeah. or between every set, you pick something that set, and you're going to focus out on that set. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, you're real. You, it's it's akin to learning any other skill like juggling. Where if you try to remember, if you try to go from zero to a hundred, where a hundred is, you know, riding a unicycle while juggling, well, you're, you're and you can't do either. Well, you're going to probably do pretty poorly, and it's going to take you a very long time if you every time just try to hop on a unicycle and immediately start juggling, as opposed to say first learning how to unicycle or first learning basic juggling drills and then putting it all together. Yeah, and I think the the main point here that we can sum up is if you don't lift something well, you didn't lift it at all. Like every once in a while, like I'll see my squat depth in the mirror and I'll be like, oh my God, that last rep, I did not hit depth. And the question is, can I hit depth on the next rep? Or if I know, if I actually hit good depth on the next rep, am I going to miss it? And if I think I'm going to miss it, I'm not going to keep squatting. I'm done for the day for squats. Like that's it. I like, I'm too tired to actually do things in the range of motion that's going to help at the low that's going to help. And, you know, otherwise, like if you're getting really tired, especially in your core or your shoulders, um, these are, you, you may have compensation patterns that can put you at higher risk of injury. Like if your back rounds or whatever, like this is scary stuff to think about, right? Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing is people think that a total, total failure in the gym has to be like you hit the bottom of a squat and you start to stand up and you can't, so you dump it. And that's what, that's what failure looks like when, like you said, failure should actually be like, did you fail to complete the lift with good technique and with a standardized range of motion. Like if you, if you keep getting less and less steep on your squats, you're doing less and less work. And those reps aren't the same as the ones in the beginning when you were hitting good depth. Yeah. Um, yeah. So actually let's, while you're touching on depth, let's talk about depth right now, uh, briefly. Um, cause I think a lot of people may be confused by people like Joel Manseed. What's his name? Seedman? Joel Seedman. Joel Seedman, that's it. Um, with his like weird 90 degree eccentric isometric. I, I'm sorry. I've, it, I've, <laughs> I, I followed him for a little bit. It was too much. I had to unfollow that guy's Instagram. Um, but yeah, he's, you know, people like that, people with, oh yeah, this is the actual way to do whatever. Um, you know, there's no, there's no secrets, especially with strength training at this point. Um, if you're, uh, so anyway, so with range of motion, you want to get into as much range of motion as you can. And if you can, um, if you need to lower the weights to, um, you know, do the range of motion, because you, I could quarter squat a lot of weight, like <laughs> to the point where my knees are like, you, sorry, you want us to do what? Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was like, I was just trying quarter squats just to see 
if they had any immediate effect. And the answer is they had an immediate effect on the soreness of my knees. Uh, yeah, that, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing else. I was quarter squatting like 500 pounds when I was like full depth squatting like 300 something, and I was, I was it was too much load. Yeah, I think the other thing is is that your squat, like you said before, your squat depth, what it is now, does not have to be the squat depth that you are stuck with for life. And so, if it takes you a couple years, that's fine. But if you can get to a depth that you like or improve your depth in some way year to year, that's great. You know, that, that is fine. There's yeah. nothing wrong with, you don't have to just go out immediately and be able to squat so deep that your hamstrings smash into your calves <laughs> from day one. It is a good feeling when you finally get to that point though. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other thing too is that comes up with some of the, the videos, the trendy videos, maybe from Joel and Seedman and others is that he wants everyone to squat in the exact same way, have this 90, 90, 90 position or whatever. And if you go out and look at the way people who do a squat for their sport, so powerlifting and then even like Olympic weightlifting, not all of them squat the same and that's fine. Not all of them, not all of them have to squat the same and all of them realize that there's going to be some, some anatomy that forces you to squat in a certain position. And so that may be that you prefer your, your feet a little wider or your feet turned out a little bit or your feet narrower than your friend. And that's fine. If you can actually see that if you sit in your, on your, you know, linoleum or wood floor in socks and you have a little bit of slipperiness underneath your feet and work yourself down to the bottom of a squat, you can move your feet around and play with your stance with a little bit or something like that and figure out where, that squat stance feels good for you as opposed to just being like, Oh, I have to do shoulder width apart feet like forward or slightly turned out. And I have to go down to this step and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It takes, it uh, takes a little, um, getting used to it. actually, it takes a lot of getting used to it. like, I've been squatting for years and I'm still going like, Oh, if I adjust this a little bit this way, if I work on this, like I'm still working on it despite that I've done like probably thousands of squats now. Um, and, you know, I think it's um, a, like a good resource for this is actually Squat University. Um, I have on my desk, because I use it all the time, the, um, well, where is it now? I can't find it. Uh, <laughs> it's the like Squat University. Oh, it's over there on the floor. Um, it's a Squat University, uh, like what a Squat Handbook or something like that. Um, it's a great resource. And actually just online, if you just Google squat university and the thing you want to think about, like look at like squat stance or squat depth or whatever it is, uh, like ankle mobility or, you know, core bracing, like there's something on it that Aaron Horshig has put out and his stuff is great. Honestly, it is. Um, so check out squat university as a, as a resource. Um, but anyway, with depth, actually, I think one of the so before we tackle the mechanism in a future strength series on training that we're going to get to, um, maybe next after the metabolism series, uh, yeah. we'll see. Um, when it comes to the stimulus, like, so I'm sure somebody out there, actually probably a lot of people out there are wondering, like, if I can go deeper with less weight, is that as good a stimulus as not going as deep with a lot of weight? And the answer is actually that it's approximately the same stimulus as best as we can tell. So if you go full depth with less weight, that is just as good as going not as deep with more weight because the stretch on the muscle and the tension is sensed by blah, blah, blah. We'll get into it later. And 
And if you can do that more, it makes more uh, or it makes approximately the same mechanical stimulus. So if you can yeah. achieve the same stimulus with lighter weights, that's less injury risk. And I'm all about that as somebody who is potentially liable for other people's injuries. <laughs> I think that's really oh, good. Oh, totally. Like there's there's something to be said for being somewhat smart about this. Like there's great videos I'm sure out there of people, I don't know, being able to quarter squat tons of weight or, you know, 10, 10 centimeters of range of motion on some leg press with like a thousand, <laughs> yeah, a thousand pounds, five hundred pounds snaps yeah. on your back. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's just risky. Like why take more risks? Like bike racing is fairly risky. Like in rarely in other sports, do you have the risk of crashing into the pavement or something? So if you can minimize <laughs> risks in other parts of your life, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. To keep in mind is that your sport is is bikes. Your sport is not <laughs> like cool lifting vids of, of how much weight you can lift. So who cares? Like at the end of the day, who cares? Like it's fun to brag to your friends, oh, I squatted, you know, 200 kilos or whatever. But ultimately, that's not what matters. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things to address when people start getting into the gym, when they think about how much should I get into the gym and how hard can I or should I go? And the answer is everybody's favorite. It depends. So <laughs> what does it depend on? So if it's interrupting cycling as your main thing, like let's say you're like in the middle of a race season and you go, oh my God, I need to weight train to improve my sprint or whatever. Um, then you get into the gym and you go to the gym two or three times a week and now all of your intervals are suffering and you are not racing as well, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's not a good thing. Um, it's sort of like, uh, you know, if you look at like soccer players or uh, football players, um, American football, sorry, uh, or lacrosse players or whoever, um, you know, the, the weight training is a supplement to aid your sport. You're not doing the weight training to become a good weight lifter. I also think that, it should be – there are ways – like the big thing people think about is soreness, and there are ways to mitigate soreness, and one of those is not diving straight into <laughs> – not lifting into like full-on three-hour gym sessions where you just grind out rep after rep after rep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, allowing so, yourself. Yeah, and in the tips spirit of 10-minute tips, um, let's give people tip on how much and how often. So I would say start with – once to twice a week with very light weights. Uh, if you're new to this, or even if you're just getting into it again after you know a whole bike racing season off of the weights, um, twice a week is good. And starting with light weights until kind of the soreness starts to go away, you're starting to feel the movement patterns sink in again, and you're starting to feel strong in your squat or whatever else you're doing. And then the, st the soreness goes away. Uh, then you can pretty easily go, okay, all right, it's time to start increasing the weights. Um, but it might yeah. take two or three times into the gym before that starts to go away. And you might still get sore, but after a while, you are no longer going to be sore. And I think the other thing to think about with soreness is, first of all, um, you're not going to be sore forever. Uh, like, I don't get sore anymore unless I do hamstring stuff because my hamstrings are barely trained. <laughs> and... Um, Soreness does not necessarily overlap with fatigue. So one of the things I suggest to people who are very sore is to 
do what you can to move around. Like if you're going to be completely sedentary, especially after a lifting stimulus, your muscles are probably going to want to stiffen up quite a bit because lifting does stiffen connective tissue in the muscle and will loosen it at the tendon, stuff like that. So when you are between lifting and you're sore, it's really good to move around and just be like, all right, can I introduce some motion into myself, like do a little gentle stretching. You can go for a walk or a very gentle hike or something like that, I think would be really good for most people. Even 10, 20 minutes on the rollers, if that's something that you like, yeah, that's fine. And honestly, it probably seems like one of those things you're like, oh, is that really going to make a difference? But if you have ever experienced this, it definitely does. You think like, oh, what is 10, 15, 20 minutes going to do? And you start, you start off feeling terrible. And by the end, you're like, oh, this actually does feel okay. Great. (laughs) I I don't feel like I cannot find the toilet seat anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Although that, you know, there is a uh, particular glory in the first couple training sessions soreness after (laughs) a couple weeks off. Because it's like, like, oh, man, I feel like I'm working again. Oh, this is great. I feel like I'm getting back into it. And then... I think a lot of people will end up trying to chase that feeling of soreness and accomplishment when, like, especially when you get into lifting heavy, like Kyle and I do. I think, um, I, I think Kyle, you sent me somebody on Instagram saying this recently. It's like, especially once you get into the really heavy stuff and the short reps range, like one to five reps, it's not that you're sore and it's not that you're really muscularly tired, although you certainly are. It's more like your nervous system is going, what the fuck? Yeah, totally. And if you ever if you ever have tried to do a one rep max and then <laughs> yeah. you know, gotten a number and then and then on the next, you know, bump it up a little bit and then you fail, it's definitely not that your muscles are like, I can't do this. It's that you're telling your body like, you know, fire harder, fire harder, fire harder, and you can't, and then you just like, Well, guess I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Which is actually why I never have given anybody but you a one rep max on the squat. Because <laughs> you're experienced enough to know how to do that. But a lot of cyclists, you don't need to figure out how far am I going. Um, you know, how, what's, what's my max? Like, you can actually gauge this pretty easily by RPE. Um, and yeah. so I usually describe RPE like this. It's like... The, you know, the six, seven, eight, nine, ten range. Like, 10 is like, like, I have absolutely nothing left. I am empty. I am dead. I, like, this, whether it's one rep, one rep or 20, um, it's like, this is the last one I got. The next one is definite failure. Nine is like, I think I have one more in me and it's going to be a stretch, maybe two. It's not like, because I think there's a lot of like, 10 minus, um, you know, whatever, like reps in reserve, like how many can you do at the end of your set? Like, I think a lot of people equate that as RPE, but I think that kind of leaves it open for interpretation. Cause I think Kyle, you and I, uh, we had seen some research a while ago that suggested that, uh, endurance athletes, um, you know, like the one rep max table to like down to like, you know, what, what's your five rep max and like three rep max and six rep max. And you know, those tables, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that endurance athletes, those tables are all screwed up because yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, cause your muscles are really good at the recovery aspect that the, um, you know, if you're, you can do like, let's say 
you know, 90% of your one rep max, like let's say it's like what, usually three to four or something like that as the estimate. Um, yeah. Endurance athletes would be able to do like five, six, seven, maybe. Um, and I've mm -hmm. certainly seen endurance athletes do their one rep max twice. And if we put five more pounds, <laughs> they cannot do it. And like, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy to watch. It's like, you can do your max load twice in a row, but like, if we add two and a half pounds or five pounds onto this, like 250 pound weight, we go 255, it cannot be done. And then we take the weight off yeah. and suddenly you can do two again. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And a lot of those tables and all of that, that data, a lot of it came from Soviet sports schools designed around Olympic weightlifting. So they are really taking that data from people doing Olympic weightlifting or, uh, you know, shot putters, people who are really, really, really pure fast twitchers, high load, high force type athletes and not cyclists. Low so endurance. Is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So that is one reason why it's just that that pool of data did not include very many or any maybe yeah. <laughs> like crit racers or something. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so let's think about load progression. Um, like when you start out lifting, obviously just the bar. Um, like last time I got back into the gym after taking a couple months off, my old one rep max for squats had been about 400 pounds. And... Uh, I got back to the, into the gym and I was, I had trouble. I did 225 for one my first day back and I was like, okay, I'm done. I, f I it felt yeah. like, it felt like my muscles were going to rip right off my bones. Um, and I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to do really light weights now. Um, I got to the point where for the record, you should not get to your first time back, but I'm stupid. So, um, I had more ego than I had strength. Um, Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Now it's been a couple months and I'm like, I'm like repping into the 300 skin, but so it can't come back, but you want to start light. But the other thing that we have is the Golgi tendon organ. And so what this does, it, it detects stretch on the tendons and in the connective tissue to say, if the load is too much, we're actually going to cut off um, the tension of the muscles entirely because they're about to get pulled off the bone uh, or we're about to like rip a tendon or something like that. And tendons and ligaments don't have a blood supply. So, um, they're really, really hard and takes a long time to repair. So that's something you really don't want to do. So when you feel that, if you feel that in the gym, you want to back it off like several notches before you hurt yourself is the point. I think the other thing is just like if you were going to dive back into FTP work from <laughs> not having done it for a year you wouldn't dive back into what was my ftp a year ago like peak fitness i'm just going to try to do some intervals at that at that level and see how far i get <laughs> very not far <laughs> um yeah so so as as people progress the load when they get get into the gym like for the first i would say like four to even like six or eight sessions you kind of want to do a little higher reps, a little lower load to not only get in the um, just embed in the movement patterns a little better, um, but also I think higher reps does good things for us um, in terms of I, I you know I I've never been able to find research on this. I'm sure people are looking at it now, but I think neurally in terms of the 
fatigue resistance of your nervous system and the like neuromuscular junctions in your muscles, I think pure speculation here, but I think it actually has a, a big benefit there, which is one of the reasons that, you know, the traditional, um, uh, periodization schemes for strength training, um, same, same as with for endurance training, have a lot of merit. And then for people who aren't aware, the traditional periodization for strength training often starts with a uh, hypertrophy phase where you're doing lower well, weights, more reps, like 8, 12, 50, sets of 8, 12, 15 type right. thing. Well, and then a, you shift a, yeah, control. after you've adapted to getting into the gym and all that again. The adaptation yeah. phase, then yeah. hypertrophy phase. Oh, no, but yeah, I'm just saying that, yeah, a lot of, a lot of traditionally... You know, if you have ever lifted weights for team sports or something like that in high school, a lot of those programs, high school football coaches just cut and paste something else that they got. And a lot of it follows that very traditional uh, flow. Yeah. Um, And then I would also say don't do your movements too fast. This is one of the mistakes I think a lot of people make when they get into it because the weights are light. And so it's like, oh, man, I can really toss this bar around. Um, Yes, but also don't (laughs) because um, when you do things too quickly, you're not thinking about the movement patterns in each spot. Like, for instance, this is why if you watch a lot of weightlifters on Instagram like Kyle and I do, one of the things that they do because weightlifting, it's one movement. It's one thing. You know, you're not going out there and it's like, who's got the best three rep max clean, which I, I don't know. It's, that sounds like a CrossFit, CrossFit thing. Yeah. Um, I, I would guess. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Um, but the the point is like this one movement. And so if you go out and you're not familiar with each little point in that movement about how your body should move around the bar, um, you're leaving uh, – performance on the table. And so a lot of the time with weightlifting, you see people pausing at certain points. Like you'll start the clean from the hang. You'll start above the knee. You'll start it below the knee. You'll start it right by your feet, um, an inch off the ground, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, And people will pause at certain points. And it's kind of fascinating to watch that kind of stuff because you're training your movement patterns. And if you go slowly or you stop at certain points, you really get that movement pattern in better. Like when I'm warming up my squats, I put just put the bar on my shoulders and I go down a quarter of the way, I come back up. I go down a little further, I come back up. So not only am I loosening up my muscles, but I'm also remembering the movement pattern as I'm warming up. And by the time I get to my working sets, I'm like, oh yeah, I can nail this, no problem. But if I just went you know, either right to heavy weights or if I went right to moving really, really fast, I wouldn't have that time to consider my body and those certain points in the movement while I'm warming up. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And that makes a lot of sense too. Like, I think this gets into something else that people often ask is what do I do for warmups? Like, <laughs> yeah. Do I, do I just dive into, to max working weight? Like, no, uh, just like you wouldn't dive into max VO2 workouts or something. Well, I'm sure some um, people do. Um, <laughs> we'll talk about warm-ups <laughs> one of these days. Well, Kyle, what's your what's your what's your normal routine to before you lift? Because you're in the gym two or three times a week, like me. So, um, yeah. So what do you for do? for a typical squat day, uh, I usually ride my bike to the gym. Um, and if I don't ride my bike to the gym, I'll hop on a spin bike or something like that for five, ten minutes, whatever. Just start to feel good. Um, I do at, some at what? Hold on. At what intensity is it? Because for me, I would do that at like. 50 watts maybe oh yeah 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 it's like it's like just 
just enough to start to feel like you're warm and but not like a you know crit warm up or something where you got to ramp it up to FTP and then shut it down and then do some hard sprints or something like that. No, no, no. This is this is five ten minutes of zone one. <laughs> yeah, zone zero point two five. I would actually um, say for the nerds out there, the point is you don't want to activate AMPK. Yeah, this is just to feel good. Maybe like maybe you're maybe you sat all day, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah, just just to loosen up. Have, yeah. have teams meetings all day, so I sit sit a lot. Uh, and then I'll usually do some banded glute walks. Like you put a band around your knees and you do shuffles to the side, or you do maybe monster walks or things like that. These are exercises you can look up online if you're not familiar with them. And then I will grab a bar, grab an empty bar. And first I will, I will kind of put it on my back. Like I was going to do a squat, but not actually do anything and just kind of stretch out my shoulders and my back so that it feels comfortable. And I'm not just putting a bunch of weight on there without having, you know, made sure my shoulder shoulders feel okay. Upper back feels okay. I'll sit down in a, in a, in a squat, in a squat position for a little bit with the empty bar. Um, just to, again, like you said, kind of feel out that those, those positions, and then, yeah, I start off with like 10 reps, empty bar, completely empty bar every time. And then do, I usually do eight at 135, six at 225, four at 315, and then a couple at whatever the working weight's going to be. Or um, if you then switch to front squats or single leg squats or whatever the working squat type movement is going to be. Yeah, I do pretty much the same. Um, I I usually don't do any aerobic warm up. Um, I usually do sets of like ten ish for like the bar and one thirty five, and that actually warms me up pretty well aerobically. Um, so that's my <laughs> my personal strategy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, because my muscles are like, oh yeah, we're just used to relaxing. And then you do ten squats, and they're like, oh my god, this is getting pretty aerobic, man. And I'm like, yeah, I know, get, you'll get used to it. Uh, so I actually spend some time huffing and puffing between uh, between the first couple of working sets. But by the time I get up into my working ranges, I'm like, like it. It'll only take it out of me in terms of like blood pressure regulation. Like when you take the belt off and then you feel yourself get dizzy or you like you finish your last squat, you rack it and then you can relax and you go, oh, my God, <laughs> everything's going gray, um, especially for the higher rep ranges like 8, 10, 12. Like that's that's like that's like going out for a five hour ride for somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the other thing is you kind of gloss over this, but typically for resting in between sets, I'll rest however long it takes for me to feel like I want to go again. So typically that's going to be more than a minute. And for really, really hard, heavy sets, that may be more than five minutes, but it's never like I have a clock and I'm like, Oh man, I gotta, I can only rest 90 seconds or something like, no, no, no. Just, just that the point is not to be fatigued going into the next set. The point is to feel good. Like you want to do this again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, I actually do time myself between, uh, working sets, but just to like, just, just as a curiosity, I don't, I'm not like, Oh, it's been five minutes. I got to do another one. If it's been five minutes and I feel good, I'll do another one. But most of the time, uh, it'll be like seven minutes, nine minutes, especially if I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) I know I have, I have for real rested like up to like 15 minutes between heavy reps, uh, between heavy sets. Um, and, uh, that's not good or bad. It's, uh, it's just what it is. Um, so, 
once you've done a couple um, couple heavy days and you're kind of you know getting used to putting on a little more weight at about the same RPE and about the same rep range, like maybe like eight to twelve for a couple weeks, uh, then you take a deload week. You're gonna rest. Um, and so let's let's go over a, a kind of deload strategy. Like wh- what would you say? Like for lighter weights, um, you could probably do the same sets and reps, but with like what half the reps, maybe a third of the reps and as opposed to like a full working set. Like if you're doing 10, you might at like 135 pounds, you might do like a set of like three to five, like two or three sets. And that's going to be a good deload day. Right. Yeah. And I think of this kind of like how you would think of a good opener day where in an opener day, you're going to do some higher, harder work, but just long enough to feel good and not so much that you feel tired at the end. Yeah. And so for a deload day, you want to work to the point where you're like, oh, yeah, this feels good. I think I could, I think I, I feel like I could keep going, but I'm going to stop. <laughs> yeah. And I think once you get into the higher weights, like into the upper 100 pounds, like lower 200 pounds, uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, somewhere around there. Um, you kind of want to back the load off too, because your joints actually can take quite a beating. Like, um, like I've been, I was, I did about three weeks of heavier squats and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And by the last day, which was Friday for me or Thursday, um, I was doing these squats and I'm like, oh my God, my knees could use a break (laughs) right now. Like they weren't in danger of being injured, but I could tell that the load on them was like a little, oh God. So for my rest week coming up, uh, my max weight on the bar is going to be like 185. Um, And that'll that'll just be like plenty for me, a couple sets of five. I'm still going to be tired, but I'm going to like get the movement pattern in. I'm going to keep myself moving, keep, and I'm going to work on my range of motion while I'm doing this. Uh, but you know, it's not going to be like I get in there and I smash it, then I leave. Um, you know, you, <laughs> you want to give your you want to give your muscles and your joints and your connective tissue a rest as well. Yeah, connect, and like you said earlier, connective tissue gets less blood flow than your muscles. So this is one thing you have to consider when you're lifting weights: is that it's not. It's not, they don't have the same recovery speeds. Yeah. yeah. And I think if we you actually could somehow inject blood into your, that's great. <laughs> well, but. I mean, uh, well, for like cartilage and stuff, squeezing it, like, you know, going for a walk or something, this is how we get nutrient exchange into those cells. Um, but for, um, you know, muscles actually have, like, they are tightly regulated in terms of uh, blood flow anyway, just because oxygen is toxic. I think we did a podcast on this once where my hypothesis was um, a recovery ride is really good uh, a lot of the time because you can actually exchange a lot more oxygen and nutrients and, you know, get, get a little more repair going. Uh, that was the speculation anyway. I still have no idea <laughs> if that's correct or not. Um, actually, we could probably do a 10 minute tips episode just on what exercises, like exercise selection. Um, oh, for sure. I think the other thing to think about is you don't have to spend bodybuilder style getting hundreds of working reps as well (laughs) like this this does not have to be a four-hour gym session this can be hour hour and a half you know you get in you do your work and you can leave you don't have to you know take up residence there in front of the squat rack yeah and and bodybuilder stuff is very different than what we want to achieve too because if you want to add muscle mass like let's say you want to improve your anaerobic capacity adding muscle mass is a great way to do it especially if you're uh you know doing your anaerobic capacity stuff and you're like, man, I want to work on my one minute power and it's just not getting better. You may need to add muscle mass if this is a thing that's really important to your riding and racing. 
Um, I'm doing yeah. this with a couple athletes this winter. We need to add muscle mass so they can have a better anaerobic capacity. So when you do this, uh, like bodybuilder rep ranges are basically any rep range, uh, any uh, load between like 30, I think, is the low end to like 80% of your one rep max. As long as you get pretty close to failure, you're not doing it wrong. Like you can build muscle mass like this. And especially if you're like prone to injury or whatever, like if you can get the stimulus with lower loads, that's a good thing. You don't have to like yeah. have a big weight on the bar just for ego and showing off. Well, maybe if there's that person in the gym you want to show off for, this is going to influence your decision. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, that's, that's a particular strategy that you can employ that you don't necessarily have to. I would say the other thing there, too, is that typically lower loads are going to require less neural drive. So you could do more like if you have to just do like how how mentally exhausting would it be to do two rep maxes to fail? You know, like to muscular failure, not to neural failure, but to muscular failure. Like you may not actually make it because your brain would just be like, I can't. I can't do this. I can't just keep doing doubles until failure yeah whereas we, we if you're would doing, just bury you under that squat rack yeah whereas if you're doing like i don't know isolation bicep curls like it doesn't take a lot of as much mental force to do isolation bicep curls so you can put on you know 25 pounds or whatever and do a bunch until failure oh yeah i think um, i i think i texted you about this the other day <laughs> like i got out of the gym and i was like ice muscle isolation machines have a special place in hell <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's because it, it takes a little bit less neural drive, so you can just really crank it out, but then you, you can't. You yeah, know, your use brain's that not muscle. as tired, but your muscle is like, oh. <laughs> um, and, and I actually, you know what's funny is that endurance riding does have a certain degree of neural fatigue. Um, it's something I, I've 90% sure I've seen research. Uh, that says that if you do like two hours of endurance riding for blah, 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 and you get to the end of it, then you try to do like a max sprint or one rep max on the squat or whatever it is, um, you can do less than before. And, you know, not only is there, could there be muscular fatigue involved here, but also neural fatigue potentially as well. Um, so uh, I need to do more research on that. So if I'm wrong on that, I really apologize. Don't quote me until uh, we do a Watts doc on it, which will be in approximately the year 2052 at this rate. So yeah. <laughs> um, add that to the pile. Of <laughs> just throw it on the pile. Um, okay. So what about functional type stuff? Because I think if you see like Mike Boyle or a lot of other uh, strength and conditioning coaches who are really well known and well regarded, I regard them highly as well. Uh, like Mike Boyle would say, maybe instead of doing heavy squats, although I'm pretty sure he does have people do heavy squats, he would say one of the main exercises that you might want to look at instead is something a lot more uh, involving a lot more of the muscle chain. Um, you know, what place does this have in cycling and, tr and strength training in general, would you say? I would say there's nothing wrong with doing something that will make you live longer potentially or a more full life or be able to do more things. But to imagine that a pistol squat off a box is also somehow going to magically make your, your sprint better is a little silly. Um, and ideally you're actually taking the strength that you're building in a gym with very not cycling specific exercises and turning that into something cycling specific by 
riding your bike and doing <laughs> yeah. bike like bike sprints. Um, but I think that if they're something that you like and that is fun for you, and especially because it's the off season for a lot of people in the Northern Hemisphere, if that's something that you like and it's not going to be completely debilitating to the other things you're trying to do, like nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with doing them. Um, doing them first might not be great because then you're going to be kind of making yourself tired for the other things that you want to do in the gym. But yeah, if it's something that you like and you're not going to hurt yourself doing, like if you see someone do, I don't know, safety squat bar kick flips or whatever, maybe don't do those. <laughs> um, but if you, if That's you've a decided to follow too, <laughs> yeah. but if you've decided that, yeah, you, you like some of these things or you want to, you want to take some time, not, 20 hours a week, but you want to take a couple hours a week doing something in a gym that you find enjoyable that you can do safely. There's nothing really wrong with that. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And also I think that, um, you know, with, uh, where do you put these? I would say put them last. Um, like, cause with you and with everybody, I always put the heavy stuff first, uh, and sometimes I'll t- put the explosive stuff either before or after, depending on where I think the neural activation is going to lie, but that's another podcast. Um, and then functional stuff like assistance exercises afterwards. Oh, here's a good one. Google seven way hips by Ryan Flaherty. <laughs> that is, um, yeah. that's a really, really good functional hip exercise that I give to literally everybody. Kyle, you've done it a million times. Like what, what's your take on stuff like this? Yeah, I think, well, I always interpreted that as like a, a glute mead glute medius work, uh, because a lot of people, not just cyclists, but a lot of people generally have much stronger quads and glute max than they do uh, glute medius. And so just doing that work to, especially at the end, it's, it's low, no weight, it's higher volume and you just kind of do it until you feel the burn. Yeah. <laughs> and then you call it a day. Well, and it's the funny thing is like, it's 15 reps of each of seven exercises. And some of them I feel are very easy. And some of them I feel are extremely difficult and, and I can do them without even going into the gym and I'll still feel that fatigue, and I know it's hitting muscles that I don't get with heavy lifts. Um, and I think this is something that, like a lot of people in strength training, and you know, even like bodybuilding and stuff like that, are getting more turned on to. Is you know, you can only tear so many biceps and like shoulder muscles and whatnot uh, before you go. Oh, I think we need to like pay attention to the smaller muscles that you don't see from the stage. Uh, and the same thing goes for cycling. Like if you are. Um, finding that you're more comfortable on the bike. If you start do a couple pushups every day, I think that's great. Uh, you should do that. But if you're doing a couple pushups every day and you're not noticing any difference and you don't want to do them, fuck it. Who cares? Yeah. I would say this, this also, the seven way hips, I also kind of lump into the idea of doing additional core work. Like some people feel like, Oh, their low back, their abs, whatever, get really sore on the bike. And they find that by doing more core work, or something like Good Mornings that that gets better, and if that that works for you, great, do it. If if you if you've done some of planks and Good Mornings or whatever other kind of core work on your own, and you feel like it doesn't really help you that much. Maybe you don't need it. Not to mention when you're deadlifting or squatting and stuff like that, you get a lot of isometric core work, kind of for free. I won't call it exactly for free because you do have to brace hard. So it's <laughs> yeah. not like you're, it's not like one of those. You're wearing one of those as seen on TV, EMG belts on your abs. It'll just like <laughs> gently work out your abs while you eat donuts on the couch. 
Well, even then, like that, the contraction there isn't even voluntary. It's involuntary. So like you still have to work on getting your brain to turn on your abs in order to brace for a squat or something like that. Um, and, and this actually... Yeah, sorry. And that, that actually turning your abs to brace for a squat, I think, does have some carryover to cycling in that when you get up to go sprint, you hear a lot of people like, how do I sprint? I feel like my sprint form is bad. And a lot of people will say like, well, when you get up to go to gear up for a sprint, like you do actually have to engage your core and brace almost like you're going to do a deadlift or a squat. Because if your core isn't stiff and you're trying to put out a lot of force with your legs, you know, Newton's laws are going to kick in and you're just kind of kind of be floppy and all the, some of the force is going to go into the pedals, but then, then some of the force is going to go back up into your upper body and your body's going to move around or something. Yeah. The force is going to so, go into like twisting your, um, twisting your torso as opposed to just being applied to the Watts or uh, to the pedal. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually a question of specificity too, like specific exercise selection. Like if we are generally mostly still on the bike, uh, to what degree do things like, uh, like pushups or rows help us? And, you know, to some degree, you know, those dynamic movements can help us a good deal because they'll teach us to turn on muscles that we normally don't turn on, especially if we're still. Like if we're rowing, we can think about using muscles in our shoulders that, you know, we normally don't think about turning on on the bike that may entirely be useful for, you know, more stability when you're riding a long time. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I actually do like to throw in rows, you know, dumbbell rows like once a week just – you know, it's it. The position is vaguely bike specific. You know, you you're you're never usually not ever pulling on the bars, except for a start. But usually you're pulling on the bars with with one arm at a time and then the other like sprinting. Yeah. Um. And you are bent over. And and if you're if you're doing them in a not on a machine, then you do have to use your core and your low back and, and your shoulders and abs in order to keep yourself steady as you row. Um. And it just feels good of of something to do. Yeah. And so if you're, um, by the way, if you're looking for suggestions for exercises like this, I suggest picking up new functional training for sports by Mike Boyle. Um, I've got it on my bookshelf. I refer to it. I crack it open probably once a month or something like that when I'm looking for something for someone. Um, and so that's my, my personal approach with this is like, if somebody's like, Oh, I'm having this issue or I'm having this issue, you know, granted that I'm not a PT, I will always tell somebody to go to a PT, but if it's like a comfort thing on the bike or if it's like a form thing on sprinting, like we'll work in and out different exercises and see if it starts to help over a couple of weeks. And if that doesn't, then we work in something else, you know, it's a kind of, a, yeah. you know, a, a trial and error, a very uh, pragmatic approach to uh, incorporating this kind of stuff. Or if people are in the Boston area, they can go to Mike Boyle. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let's wrap this up with talking about cycling and lifting kind of in tandem. Like, um, where would you want to put what? And this is uh, a whole other podcast for that we could do a series in Wattstock with. But um, let's think about it in general terms. Like, in general, how, uh, how would you add cycling into an already busy uh, lifting schedule or lifting into an already busy cycling schedule? Well, unless you have no other commitments in life and just are able to eat and sleep and live that, you know, faux professional athlete life, you should probably realize that something has to give you. You only have so much recovery 
And if you have 15 hours of riding and you cram in seven hours of lifting because you want to lift three days a week, well, that might be sustainable for a week or two, but then eventually (laughs) you're you're probably going to have a bad time. Um, So firstly, it's being realistic with that. You cannot do all the things all the time. So that's one consideration. And secondly would be, what is your focus? Like if it's the off season and you're just kind of doing fun, longer rides with your friends, well then, yeah, you, you throw in some lifting a couple days a week and you want to prioritize the lifting more. So you do the lifting maybe earlier, early in the week once when you're fresh and then you, you have some rides for a couple days, maybe have a day off in there, do some lifting again, maybe do a day off or something like that um, before you do your rides. Or if Maybe if it is more just maintenance lifting, then you're only lifting once a week, then you you still can't, you shouldn't double up and do like, oh, I have a six-hour endurance ride, and then I'm going to go to the gym afterwards, and it's going to be great. No, you're going <laughs> to find that that's not really sustainable. Um, but yeah, I think first step is being realistic with what you want to focus on and what's important, and especially for the off-season, realizing you don't have to go 100% all the time, especially now yeah and i think that gets into a deeper thing with endurance training of like how hard should you go in the off season and um you know i think we did a podcast on this once like what is base really and i i it was a joke it was entirely a joke where um where i said or you said that the reason that you should do you know low intensity endurance in the off season is to get some time resting um which is you know, in hindsight, it's only like 50% of a joke, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so strength training, actually, I find it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't quote unquote count towards, um, you know, um, like off season intensity, like it's hard for sure. And you need to eat appropriately, uh, like a lot more than most people think actually for strength training, like, um, you know, I've I've had people ask me before, like, oh, this uh, this lift session today is this going to be uh, carb intensive? It's not that carb intensive, right? Because like the kilojoules are low, but you can burn through a ton of glycogen in just a like a set of five squats, like a couple sets of five, at you know seventy eighty percent of your one rep max, which you know f- a set of five at seventy percent one rep max, I would put in the six RPE range, and if you do five of those. Yeah. You know, you, at your last squat might be like a seven or an eight, eight and a half RPE, and you could deplete uh, like probably half your glycogen. I think I'll have to double check on that study. Um, I may or may not like it in the show notes, so uh, look for that. Um, and so you do need to eat a lot after these things, and you need to recover properly. So with like cycling and lifting together. Um, I usually suggest not doing anything over like tempo pace, uh, while you are lifting heavy twice a week or three times a week, even like if you're lifting three times a week, heavy, um, you are probably not riding your bike that much because, uh, that is a lot, a lot of lifting. Also, I I think some people will, you, you can, you probably can do some good riding while you still feel a little sore. Like, like we've said before, soreness does not exactly map 100% onto fatigue, especially if you're relatively new to lifting. But that doesn't mean that you can always get away with, with riding 
when you're sore and you'll quickly realize <laughs> what when you're when you're like, oh, I'm just a little sore, but I can do this or or when you're like, oh, my God, I like, you know, tried to start warming up and then just couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's something to pay attention to is your fatigue levels in general uh, and thinking, yeah. what, what am I prioritizing now? Like if um, like if you have like a particular target you want to hit for your endurance rides and you cannot hit them, then you either want to lower your target or you want to do less lifting or you want to look yeah. at your diet and maybe um, maybe eat more. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're trying to gain strength and you're not, if you're kind of stalling out, look at your diet, like your recovery. Do you need a rest week? Do you need a deload week? Do you need to eat more? Like there's a lot of things there. Um, reach out for me for a consultation on that, by the way, <laughs> empiricalcycling at gmail.com. Probably a good time for a plug. Um, one of the other things is don't just take your, your off season, you know, endurance ride training plan and tack on weights on top of it. <laughs> yes. Yes. You really need to consider both. It's not like, I think, um, you know, and if you are going to do double days, um, my personal preference is ride in the morning, get three to four hours. Um, this is informed by science, by the way, This is, and also experience. Get three to four hours between riding and lifting, and you want to take at least a half-hour nap, and you want to eat a lot between. That's, yeah. that's, my, and, that's but, my suggestion, ideally. But don't eat a lot right before <laughs> the lifting. Yes. You want to get the food in, you know, at least an hour and a half, maybe two hours before you actually have to lift again. Yeah. Uh, also, or, you know, not that everyone wants to eat gels all the time, but if you feel like you need a little bit of a little bit of sugar or something, there's nothing wrong with eating a gel, even though it's kind of gross. You're like, oh, eating a gel, <laughs> just to go to the gym. But <laughs> sugar is sugar. Yeah. Although I've made this mistake too and been at the gym and been like dying halfway through and been like, oh, there's a there's the convenience store next door. I'm going to stop what I'm doing, go next door and buy a Coke and a package of cookies. And I've been <laughs> that person like sitting there. <laughs> like just like when you bonk on a long ride, you're like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to this this can of Coke and this and this this box of cookies is is saving my life. Yeah, nothing like uh, gas station food in the middle of the gym. No, literally, there's nothing like it because it makes you want to vomit. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, do we have any more thoughts to wrap this up? Because that's pretty much all I had down for today. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think, you know, like we said, the other aspects, the more detailed questions about exact sets, reps, periodization, exercise selection, all of those things are, this would end up like a seven-hour epic Um <laughs> <laughs> if we dove into every single one. So we probably shouldn't. Uh, and hopefully this answers a lot of the basic questions that people have yeah. this time of year. And if it doesn't answer your questions entirely, well, you're going to have to um, hire an empirical cycling coach potentially. So anyway, with that said, um, if you do want to hire somebody as a coach, you can email me at empiricalcycling at gmail.com. Uh, I think the next 10-minute tips episode, we're actually going to cover exercise selection because um, that'll – take us uh, in a little bit into the rabbit hole and into the weeds uh, before we do a Wattstock series on strength training. So um, so we'll do that. And uh, what else do we got? Oh, um, iTunes ratings, by the way. We have almost 100 five-star ratings. Thank you all for that. Uh, I, I think it helps. I'm told it helps. So <laughs> keep doing that. Uh, share the podcast. Um, we're ad-free if you want to donate at empiricalcycling.com slash donate. We have the show notes up on the website. Uh, may or may not put some studies up there 
different things we mentioned today when I do the edit down. Um, we have some merch, empiricalcyclingpodcast.threadless.com. Again, coaching and consultation inquiries for strength training, for if you're a sprinter, if you're an endurance athlete, if you're a mountain biker, if you're a BMAX racer. Um, you know, contact us. Uh, we can put together a strength plan. We can consult on strength training. We can put together uh, training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, also on Instagram, at Empirical Cycling, uh, weekend AMAs and the stories. And uh, I'm actually going to start doing them while I'm in the gym. <laughs> I did that on Thursday. That was kind of fun. Uh, for a couple hours, uh, people asked me gym questions. That was awesome. So, um, all right, everybody, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.